0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Paints, Gains, and Automobiles. This is a podcast discussing the development of modern cities and how transportation shapes the way we live. My name is Armand Bachman, and I was born in 1994 in Calgary, Alberta. Together with my co-host Ken, we are 50 years apart in age, but share an interest in urban policy. During those 50 years, our cities have been transformed, and we share an interest in discussing how those changes have impacted our lives. On this episode, Ken and I will be discussing how we have rediscovered the, the appeals of walkability in our, during our lives. Ken, if you'd like to introduce yourself.
1: Sure. I'm Ken Greenberg. I was born in 1944 in New York City. I lived in a number of cities in the U.S. and Europe and moved to Toronto in 1968. I went on to become an urban designer and founding director of urban design and architecture for the City of Toronto, a teacher, a writer, and I'm now principal of Greenberg Consultants. I've worked in urban settings throughout North America and Europe at the intersection of urban design, architecture, landscape, mobility, social and economic development, and have written two books, Walking Home, The Life and Lessons of a City Builder, and Toronto Reborn. The car has always been a critical factor. We met when I was Armand's mentor as a Master of Public Policy student at the University of Toronto, focusing on transportation and urban policy. As Armand said, we were born 50 years apart, and we discovered as we shared anecdotes and experiences that there was a complex love hate relationship with the car that has shaped both of our lives and our careers and we thought it would be interesting to share that intergenerational experience
0: as an expanded conversation so Ken to kick us off uh, on our discussion of how we rediscovered the appeal of walkability and the benefits of that sort of a uh, urban design i was wondering if you could kick us off with uh when did you just start becoming conscious of a shift and um was there when? When were you start to think about the fact that there was another way to think about how we built a city that wasn't dependent on cars?
1: When I made the shift, um, not just through my experience, which I never put into words, but in terms of thinking about it seriously, is when I came across "Death and Life in Great American Cities," written by Jane Jacobs, just before I entered architecture school at Columbia University, and that was really the first time that I thought seriously about something that I had kind of taken for granted up until then. Um, The book made me recall my own childhood in Brooklyn, which was a highly walkable, transit-oriented, older neighborhood, um, moving as an adolescent to Geneva, Switzerland, where I was all over the city on my bike and the tram. And then contrasting it, with a small taste I had had of North American suburban life. And so reading that book, I began to understand why. Mm -hmm. Why was it so different? What made it different? And then another big jump for me is when I moved to Amsterdam, when I was partway through my studies at Columbia, and living and working in Amsterdam, there was a program that the city had embarked on of reducing car dependence and at that point, I realized this was actually a job. This was a profession. And people were working on it consciously. So what, what was that moment of shifting
0: consciousness for you? I'd say for me, it was a somewhat similar in, in the time of my life that it occurred. I'd say that the first taste of it was um, kind of my university experience. I went to Western University in London. And I think not a lot of people maybe look at at it like this. You have to maybe be an urban planning nerd. But for a lot of people, I think people, you know, talk about the college experience in North America as a very kind of a formative experience for a certain, a certain group of uh, people that g- grew up in North America. And I think An element of that is that university campuses in a lot of places are kind of a little walkable city. You know, students live on campus, especially in their first year, and they walk to classes. They walk to see their friends at different places on the campus. Um, A lot of places, certain campuses have kind of everything available to them. At university, I would bike and walk to class a lot and kind of in just kind of noticing that I enjoyed that way of getting around more and also living in a place that I could walk to my classes. Even um, when I wasn't living on campus, just living nearby campus was always a uh, really appealing and a nice thing to be able to do was to take buses. So you,
1: you thought that could be a model for how people live not only on campus, but in real life in the city?
0: A little bit, yeah. I think maybe at the time, because I was actually studying international relations when I was there, so I was looking kind of at a very big picture, a lot of pretty big picture issues, Um, but I think that was when I first started to, in my lived experience, notice a difference and an appeal towards walkable areas. Um, then I kind of continued, went back to Calgary for a year to quickly for for work and then moved out to Vancouver. And when I was in Vancouver, I lived in kind of a more walkable, bikeable area where I I bike to work all the time or, you know, obviously it's rainy out there. So sometimes I would take the, uh, the SkyTrain, um, and just kind of of continuing to live in that mode and then that got me more actively i would say inc- interested in connecting it to urban planning decisions because i was biking on you know nice separated bike lanes as opposed to um, painted gutters in other places that are kind of act as a bike lane which is you know better than nothing but it could always be um, you could always have safer infrastructure right. and then kind of that really came to fruition for me when I moved to Toronto into a streetcar suburb, as we've discussed earlier. And um, that kind of, I don't know, put the nail in the coffin for me that these sort of, you know, the missing middle, as if you will, these kind of not giant apartment buildings necessarily, the the tall part of the tall and sprawl, but these medium density areas that are walkable and connected through transit. Um, I started to realize, just kind of put the nail in the coffin living in those areas of Toronto that I think. We can and we should build more of this going forward, um, as well as kind of all, all along the way, connecting it to other issues. You know, the most predominant one being environmental issues and trying to just create infrastructure that people can more easily have a less of an impact on um, climate change going forward. So back to you. Um, when did you start to feel that you could actually, you kind of alluded to this in your last answer, that you could actually do something about how our cities are built and you could put these ideas into practice?
1: So what happened to me when I came to Toronto, I was 24 years old, I was still in architecture school, I had two more years to finish, and I had this strange sensation coming to Toronto from New York of traveling back in time. Interesting. It literally felt like it was a time capsule, that I was going back to the Brooklyn of my childhood. Jane Jacobs, who arrived about the same time I did, told the Globe and Mail that she thought Toronto was still relatively unmangled. And by that, she meant we hadn't built all the highways crisscrossing the city. The streetcars were still running, which so many American cities had ripped up. The old main streets were still active and lively. I I had that sensation that, wait a minute, it's like going back in time. Maybe we don't have to make all the same mistakes, and maybe there's something we could do about it. So after I got out of school, I had a small architectural practice. And I got an interesting opportunity to go to Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, responding to uh, an ad from from the province of Saskatchewan to do a master plan for the little city of Prince Albert, 30,000 people. And I actually spent a few months there. And it was like somebody who's been studying the human body suddenly having an amoeba under the microscope. Mm -hmm. I saw in microcosm how the city engineer, the one planner, uh, and the business people were shaping the city. And it occurred to me that they were making the very decisions that were pushing this little city to car dependence, like building a big mall a couple right. of kilometers outside of downtown. And ultimately, they ended up killing it. So I took that knowledge back to Toronto and wasn't sure what to do about it. But a few months later, I got an invitation uh, from then Mayor David Crombie to come into the city and start an urban design group. And that began, for me, uh, a real chance to turn this into a job, into uh, a mission. And in fact, uh, with my group, began working on turning city streets into more walkable, widening sidewalks, taking away traffic lanes, working on public spaces, and um, realized that If you were in a position where you could actually make those decisions on behalf of a city, you could end up with an enormously different kind of place. And some of these things were relatively simple and straightforward. So for you, having had that kind of uh, sense of, of the possibility, when did you move from international relations are and think maybe this could be something you wanted to do as a career?
0: Uh, A part of that is, you know, kind of almost a little like a little, a little personal, you know, I thought a little, it's kind of international relations. I started to, as I studied it more and more, I started to realize, you know, these are kind of such macro issues that there's so many players involved and to have an impact as a single person in those spaces. I just thought, it seemed a long way off, and even even how big an impact you could really have, and you know what spaces are even positive ones at the international relations area, I kind of started to take a step back and think, where can I actually maybe have an you know work in some place where it has a real tangible impact on you know on as people as many people as possible, and I started to realize municipal work, local work, a lot of people get a lot of their you know Government services and other services, and you know, engage with their day-to-day life at the local level. So I kind of had a change in perspective on that of working at the local level and trying to impact things locally, as opposed to the macro of internationally, and kind of look around me a little bit more and um, more domestically. Um, and that was kind of related to all sorts of issues. And then that kind of happened in alongside my growing interest and awareness in urban planning and transportation planning. So I kind of I figured you know this is a particular area that I'd be very interested in you know growing more in and working more in and having an impact on at a local level. Um, but other than that, it was also kind of connecting the dots between not just how we get to point A and point B and what sort of housing we live in, but also how the cities we live in impact the environment, how they actually impact how we see one another as citizens in our you know, in our kind of social organization and social structure. I think, um, I remember, I forget the specific, I think it might've been a Toronto election of maybe in 2015, one of those years where I saw a map that kind of tied the election to um, the density of the neighborhoods and the ridings. And it's incredible how closely those align um, and how closely like, kind of the the built form of where people live, impacts how they think about the world, um, you know, and in so many different ways, let alone just politics. And I think um, kind of how, especially as a young perspective, you know, thinking about maybe being a homeowner at some point or something like that, just kind of looking at the housing options available on the market, that you could either have a an apartment in a, you know, a increasingly higher and higher condo, or you can have kind of a single family home that's getting further and further away from the central business district that you may work in. Just started to think maybe there's other options available and why is it that people are always saying, Oh, in Europe they have such lovely cities and I had friends that friends that maybe went on a trip to Asia did a little, you know, a trip out there and came back and said, Oh, they walked everywhere and to this had seen their photos of the streets and the kind of the street life and the street food or the um the squares that people go and sit in and whole um entire neighborhoods Well, you might be out in a some city square having dinner on a given night so i just started to think why there's no reason as i learn more and more about this stuff there's no reason we couldn't build make the decision to build these sort of places in north america and i would like to be a part of that at a local level if possible
1: so what's really interesting is ultimately it's all connected yes what we do at the local level is cumulative Mm -hmm. and what people do in lots of places at the local level rises up and changes the national level and the international level and has a huge impact on climate change and our right response to it. So Yeah, the, that was the, part
0: of my thinking you know, too that these even these macro issues that are international I can have an impact on them at a local level and I can right. start at a local level and you know see where like you know life takes me sort of thing and uh go from there but there's no like you're saying that there, there's no real actual um It's a dotted line. It's between the two. There's no firm break between the two.
1: So what you're saying reminds me of a a quote I've often used by Winston Churchill Mm -hmm. when he was talking about the after World War II, the House of Parliament in the UK, and to paraphrase it, we shape our buildings and our buildings shape us. Well, you can just substitute cities. We shape our cities, and in turn, the way we live in those cities, just like our language, shapes our perception of reality. Mm-hmm. We we relate to what we live, uh concepts that come from the places we live, the streets we walk on, our daily life uh ultimately end up forming a world view. And what's so interesting about the profession that I chose a long time ago and that you're getting into now is there is enormous satisfaction in actually seeing changes that you've made change people's lives literally cause generations of people to live differently and so when i look back over all the projects i've worked on over multiple decades and i go back to those places and i i can honestly say without fear of contradiction that in many cases they're different than they might have been but for the opportunity that that i had so you've now actually chosen to put what you were saying into practice, you are working in Peel Region, and just talk a little bit about what you're doing there.
0: Yeah, out there I work in the housing services department, mostly, it's a little bit, it's where I work mostly work to help support the uh, people that need um, housing support or the homeless population out there. But really through that work, the one thing I've learned is that it's very important in deciding, particular in housing, what we build, um, not just are we building more supply, but what sort of supply are we building? And I think as it relates to our conversation, there's a real efficiency side of it too. If we're trying to connect, have, you know, build neighborhoods that connect people to services they need or the work they need, um, a really a great way to do that for the most amount of people is to do it alongside reliable public transit options. Um, And the kind of public transit options that, you know, public transit supports a a certain kind of housing, which would best be walkable, walkable neighborhoods, walkable housing. Of course, there's all sorts of varieties and and to what people need in their life. And some people uh, need vehicle transport for whatever reason. But I think kind of to tie back another thing that made me more interested in urban planning was the kind of what I was seeing as a growing, I think is at this point pretty clear, a growing housing crisis that's been happening in North America. For the quite a quite a bit, and I think a lot of people are saying, if we just build more housing, we can get out of this housing crisis. We just got to build more, build more, build more. But are you building single family homes that are that people need cars to access? Are you building um, affordable housing that people can access using public transit? And then those affordable housing communities—do they actually have a sense of community, or are they just kind of a area on the side of a car dependent on the side of a highway that? Is really isolated relative compared to um, other amenities and other things people need. So, um, just kind of thinking about the kind of supply that's being built and how we serve that supply in terms of transportation and what sort of neighborhoods we want to build. And when we tackle this, the housing issue.
1: So, it's not just the housing, it's certainly not just the housing unit, it's what happens when you walk out the door. Exactly. And if you have kids, how do they get to school? Do they have to be bused? Do you have to drive them? Or can they walk or cycle? Mm -hmm. Where do you get your groceries? Again, do you have to get into a car to do that? Um, Daycare, if you're a young parent, where's the playground? Where's the community center? And right now, the discussion we're having about the housing crisis, unfortunately, focuses so much on just the housing itself in isolation from all the other aspects of life. It's also the cost, not just of paying your mortgage or paying your rent, was the cost of your life. If every adult has to have an automobile to do all those other things, that adds enormously to your budget. So to the extent that you can live in a place which doesn't force you to use the car, your life can become much more affordable. So what, what's, what happened, and you know, just to move away from our personal experiences, what started to happen in a very significant way around the time that I arrived in Toronto, and was even happening a bit before, is that people who had been captured by the allure of the post-war suburbs began to rediscover the homely virtues of those older neighborhoods. The fact that they still had the streetcars that the main streets were intact that they could walk the things they had the parks the playgrounds the schools the libraries and so they became newly popular especially with younger generations i moved into the beach in the east end of toronto when i was still a student i loved having access to the boardwalk a couple of my professors lived there which is how i discovered it and it was actually full of young people like me, with my young family who were coming from all over the world, who said, wow, we can live in downtown Toronto because it's, you know, pretty close to downtown. We can take the Queen Street car if we have to get to downtown or get to the university. We can even ride a bike, even though there weren't great bike lanes. The distance was not that uh, insurmountable. And so that happened throughout the city of Toronto. All those pre-war neighborhoods became newly popular and were re-inhabited very significantly. And that ended up making an enormous change. In the end they became so popular that they became more expensive, which is another problem we we can talk about later in terms of how to deal with that. But we're now several decades later Facing a new kind of problem, which is what do we do with all that part of the urban environment that we built after World War II that was built around the car? Because those older neighborhoods had been built before cars were used to any great extent. So they had great bones. They had the proximity, they had the smaller streets, they had all of the aspects of social infrastructure built into them. So now I think the most significant planning and urban design problem for the next couple of generations is what do we do with that post-war suburban landscape? And that's become a new problem set, which people like us are dealing with all across North America. You're working in Peel Region, which is part of the 905 in Toronto, which very much has that characteristic. I've spent the last four years working in Brampton, in Peel Region, on making the transformation so that with the great growth that we're experiencing we don't make the same mistakes necessarily again and so this idea of neighborhoods of proximity sometimes referred to as the 15-minute 20-minute neighborhood has become a new kind of goal for people in our profession but also for the development industry which is really interesting
0: yeah i was wondering maybe you could speak a little bit more about what's going on in Brampton, as like I guess what you're what you're able to to, to speak about, or maybe the recent discussion across Canada about 15 minute cities, um, and how they're picking up. I know, um, growing up in Alberta, I saw that it's come up in Edmonton and Calgary politics a bit in some ways of so people not quite maybe overthinking the level of uh, control that's involved in a 15 minute city and the what the, necessarily um the man a mandate would be for that but uh if there even would be one but um just curious how you would see such suburban areas transitioning into um so far what what people's best practices are so far
1: so first of all the uh, the 15 minute city which you know as a concept really uh got rebranded by Anne Hidalgo the mayor of Paris who talked about le Paris d'un quart d'heure the, the you know the quarter hour Paris Is really just how we lived before World War II and it was everywhere and then we moved away from it so what's going on now and the work I was involved in Brampton is an example of this is Brampton is as you know one of the fastest-growing cities in Canada absorbing tremendous amounts of new population and so the city in 2018 uh created what it called the 2040 vision how are we going to grow how are we going to absorb all this new population where and how are people going to live and from that came the idea that instead of just building isolated buildings in many cases high-rise buildings here and there around the landscape in a, in a fragmented and incoherent way, let's gravitate to where the new transit, the expanded commuter rail service, the GO system is happening with 15-minute all-day service, light rail, bus rapid transit. Let's focus the development on those places. And it wasn't a hard sell to the development industry because that's what they wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. And then how do we build in all those things which make daily life work On that 15 minute basis. So, how do we get ahead in terms of the schools, the community centers, the libraries, the local shopping? How do we get ahead of the curve so people won't just be moving into towers, but still having to get into their car to access everything? And so the city has ended up playing a much more proactive role. It's not coercive, it's cooperative. And I have to say, the development industry, for example, around an area called Uptown. Which is at Steeles and here, Ontario, where the light rail is coming in. We had seven or eight developers who decided to build right there because that was where the new transit stop was going to be. And so, cor- the choreography of how do you make those individual developments and their designs into a walkable new neighborhood is really what it's all about and a model has emerged which is being replicated in many places in Brampton but also all across the greater golden horseshoe you're seeing instances of this crop up where former regional malls or power centers are actually being converted into neighborhoods
0: Mm -hmm. that's a really interesting trend as well because it's an echo of what we saw historically in the development of cities with London for example London in the UK really grew or the beginnings of its growth really came as a result of rail being implemented there. And at the rail stations, you would see pockets of growth kind of around the rail station because suddenly this new rail station out in the, what was once once the countryside around London became some place that you could access downtown London where people worked in a much quicker time because that rail station was built there. So people would build in proximity to the rail station where they could walk to the station and then go to work in London. And you saw that, you know, continue with streetcars at a kind of a, a different model because streetcars stop more regularly. So that's how you saw what we've discussed earlier of the streetcar suburbs. And now, as you're saying it, we're seeing it in the Greater Golden Horseshoe, based around these regional rail go train hubs, which is a at least a really good starting place to build back these areas in a new way. And I I like to frame it in a way that it's not it's not you know, coercive. If anything, it's providing more choice to people and how they live. It's um, trying to remove what was actually more coercive in the existence of these zoning requirements that Im- mandated essentially single-family housing in huge areas. Um, by removing those sort of requirements and allowing, like you're saying, these are these developments are often in partnership with the development community and their eager participants. It allows more choice in how people want to live and the housing options that they choose to buy with them when they have the options available to them. It doesn't only limit the options between um, a one or two bedroom condo and a, you know, much a much larger house somewhere that's, you know, further away from maybe an area you might w- want to live or kind of locks you into a lifestyle where you are the expense of a car or something that you maybe would choose altern- an alternative if it was available.
1: So what's interesting is 100 years ago, uh, in the early part of the 20th century, All this came naturally, almost organically. You had, um, in the case of Toronto, you had um, street rail companies. They were private companies that built the streetcars before we had the TTC. They were also, in many cases, the land developers. You had builders, and it was just common sense that you got the shops along the streetcar routes near the stops because people were walking back and forth to get the streetcar. That's when they would do their daily shopping you had the board of education of the day that built schools in those neighborhoods they built playgrounds as the population grew the housing types had that mix of uh, fourplexes sixplexes small scale apartment buildings semi-detached row houses single family houses the, the beach in toronto is a perfect example mm-hmm. of that mix and we with um zoning As we got into the post-war period with the infatuation around the car that we've talked about in previous podcasts with the idea of separating everything, we formed a whole bunch of really bad habits. And so now what we're trying to do is to get back to what came naturally in order to create those conditions for life that are more sustainable, more sociable, more economically viable. They have all the good characteristics. They're good for our social health, for our mental health. Um, and we, in order to do that, we have to unlearn, consciously unlearn the bad habits and bring in new practices. And it's causing a whole new level of conversation, of collaborations, of rethinking of those practices, of those rules and regulations, where we made it illegal to live in sustainable ways. Mm-hmm. So that your generation has to pick up the baton now, as you're doing in Peel Region, and really almost provide a, a sunset provision where you look at all the the unhelpful rules and regulations and parse them and say what's working, what's not working, how do we make the change?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd say you know younger generations, I would say we. You know we're blessed with kind of being on the tail end of this movement and having a lot of data available to us uh, that I think makes the decision a little bit easier. And also the like we've mentioned earlier, the kind the importance of combating climate change is becoming more and more clear. Especially if you've seen the recent IPCC uh, report, it's I recommend checking that out. It, look, it's uh, always important to keep up on those reports when they're issued, just to see the importance of you know tackling climate change. Through house, through urban planning, but also through all sorts of other ways. But yeah, as far as our you know younger generations are concerned, I definitely think there is a growing understanding and awareness in general about these sort of issues. On if you were to maybe do some sort of measurement on average, but I also do think there's a, there are these like you've alluded to these pretty dominant myths that still exist that do will take some work to get around, and I think it's important that people that are that. Their particular field that they like to read heavily on, everyone has their thing that they get really nerdy on. so some people it's um, urban planning, other people it's other things. Um, so the people that are get you know spend a lot of their time learning a lot about urban planning have to and that's kind of a purpose uh, uh, one of the ideas we had behind this podcast is try to appeal to people in their own language and through their daily lives and get through a lot of the the jargon and the kind of the policy speak that um, people often speak at and show well, how these are decisions that were made that we can make different decisions and they do impact how you live. you know if you like going to certain cities on vacation or certain parts of town um, when you have a free Sunday, it we can build more areas that are like that and they can be a choice available to you um, throughout the country and not just in certain pockets of the country that are you know the more appealing neighborhoods or the more appealing cities. I think it's really important to appeal to people. In terms that they under understand um because for example a myth like induced like the the issue of induced demand that if we build more lanes highways will be less congested it's such a at a surface level it seems so oh yeah of course if we build more lanes that will there'll be more room for the cars and then there'll be less congestion at a surface level it makes sense um and i think that's one of those example of those pervasive myths that makes sense at a surface level but at the layer deeper that not a lot of people, um, have time to really go to all the time. Um, it, it ends up being a myth, a proven, a proven myth. So I think kind of cutting through those is really important and understanding the language and getting into the spaces. Um, I know you've been on the radio recently, so in getting into spaces like that, to speak to people where they're, where they are and, um, at, in terms of they understand is really important, especially, you know, younger generations, we have more information available to us. The internet's a great thing too. There's a lot of blogs or YouTube channels and stuff out there of people just trying to put these, this information together in quick, small packages that people can digest that are targeted towards popular audiences. And I think just promoting those sort of things um, for you, to younger people, but also it has to be an active process because it's not just going to happen naturally. It's I think it's important that people that are interested in um, addressing these issues, I try to be really active and engage with people at in their levels and in their spaces.
1: So it, you're absolutely right. We would be really misleading people if we gave them the impression that this is now on autopilot, we're going to do all the sensible things, and it's all going to turn out fine. The truth is, there is an ongoing struggle. The two paradigms, the new paradigm that we've been describing of living in a more sustainable way, more walkable way, more emphasis on transit is, has its momentum and is moving ahead. And at the same time, the old paradigm, the post-World War II auto-oriented paradigm, is still alive and well. Just noticed on the QEW, the big highway leading down to, uh, to Hamilton and, and to uh, Niagara, they're widening the highway. They're making it uh, twice the size of what it is today. We still have a provincial government that's determined to build a new highway, Highway 413, which not only will induce traffic, it will induce sprawl. Mm -hmm. And we're having an argument about whether to be one of the only cities in the world, if not the only one, that's going to rebuild an elevated highway right in the heart of the city. So to put it crudely, we are sucking and blowing at the same time. We're really doing those things that are in complete contradiction. We say certain things and we do the opposite. So this it's very important to advocate as strongly as possible for making the shift, which is not about a lifestyle choice anymore. It's really about survival. It's about Mm -hmm. dealing with the existential crisis of climate change as if even if there were nothing else at stake. Now, what's unfortunate is that change is hard. And people react to change in different ways. And it is easy to run for office by exciting people's fear and making them angry and making them uncomfortable and turning issues, which should by all rights be nonpartisan, should just be a matter of doing the right thing, into wedge issues. And that is, unfortunately, the reality that we're living through. We have a new mayoral election, a surprise election coming up. Uh, We're going to elect a new mayor on June 26th. The candidates are already staking out positions that put them in one camp or another. And no doubt, some of them will try and use this issue as the wedge in order to try and develop uh, something that will pull, let's say, voters who live in the more auto-oriented Areas into one camp versus people who live in the more pedestrian oriented areas, pre war, post war, however you want to describe it. And I think we have to really work hard to overcome the perceptions that go along with wedge politics. So, this is perhaps a good point to just advertise our next podcast, which is the politics of transformation, the so called war on the car, which is a slogan that was used in the 2016 mayoral election in Toronto, and still seems to be out there. So perception and reality around
0: the war on the car. That'll be a exciting episode to tune into, I'm sure. Uh, looking forward to chatting about that and how urban planning and transportation infrastructure is used as a political wedge and how that upends making any progress on these issues into the long run. So thank you, Ken, for joining me today and looking forward to having all of you listeners joining us again. Likewise. Thanks.